0: I'm excited to be here. The Holy Spirit is good. I want to just uh, share why I'm excited. Six weeks ago, the land texted me, asked me if I wanted to preach, and I immediately shot him a text back and said, yes, Romans 1, 12, 1 to 2 is on my mind. And why that's so good, for the last four weeks, if you've been here, or six weeks, we've been kind of going over the... The new, the new you, putting off the old self, putting on the new you, and this text lines up perfectly. And Deland didn't even give me a direction. That's straight the Holy Spirit. It is good to see, and it lines up. And if you guys can remember Kevin's message a couple days ago or a couple weeks ago, he had the big sword up here, the William Wallace sword, and we were pointing that at uh, at Satan and seeing how the word can combat Satan's lies. Today, we're going to kind of turn that sword, and it's going to be pointed at us a little bit. So I want you guys to prepare yourself for that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you that and praise you for how your Holy Spirit moves, and it's so evident when we open our eyes to it and uh, are looking for it. You are there guiding us through every day. Lord, and as we uh, open up your word and dive into what Paul was writing to the Romans about being a living sacrifice and how to apply that to our lives, Lord, I ask that you soften our hearts so that we have good soil, soft hearts, so that the word will penetrate and will grow and that it will be life-changing, Lord. We thank you. Amen. So we'll be looking at Romans 12.1. We have it on the screen there. You can open up your, your Bibles to Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's kind of hard to jump into the middle of a book. As you see in the beginning, God, Paul is calling us on the mercies of God to become living sacrifices. So we have to look at what the, what the mercies of God is. There's a therefore. We must go back to understand why we need to be living sacrifices. This therefore pertains actually to the previous 11 chapters of Romans so I'm gonna do my best to kind of summarize it so we can kind of have a context on what Paul is calling us to in Romans 1 1 2 3 Paul is dealing with man's depravity he's writing to the Romans he wants to put them in the right mindset and there's kind of three categories that he puts us into there's three categories the first one and they can kind of intertwine. They can kind of mix. They're not hard lines. You can kind of blend the three together. But the first one would be kind of the academic person, the person that trusts in their own knowledge. We, look, we see this in Romans 1, 20 to 22. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. The first kind of verse there pertains to the three categories. God is merciful to us. He is showing, we don't need the scriptures. He is showing us, just by looking at creation, we can see that there's a God that is needed to have designed this great thing. But our world is focused the academic focuses on what they can study, what they can touch, what they can see, what they can reproduce. And, a point, and, it doesn't, and they, as we study these things, it should point to that this could not all happen by chance. There is more to it. The, the complexity of life, the, the diversity of ecosystems, and how it all comes together. There is more to life in First Corinthians. As to that, First Corinthians 1, to 23. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we pre-Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. The Greeks loved wisdom. They, had, they would get together and try to solve all the mysteries of the world and they would bring their greatest minds to, to discuss these things, to, to, uh, to debate, and they would accept all things so that they could put, put together the puzzle pieces because they knew there was something greater. Their scien- science would point them that there's something greater than ourselves here at work. But when we look at these things, when we look at Christ, they did not expect that a human man, a God-man, would be the solution to the problem, so they rejected it. And we rejected it because it it demands that we must give up something of ourselves. It points that we are not all who we think we are. That's kind of the first one in a nutshell. The next one is the moralism. Moralism or, or a moralist. These are people... You can kinda of put all other religions in this in this category. Everyone that does not profess, pre- profess God as the true God, it would be Buddhist, Hinduism, all these different religions. They're all self seeking. They come up with these ideas that they know that we are we have problems with ourselves, we have issues, we have they just call them mistakes or bad habits. We call it sin. And we must deal with this. So they come up with a set of rules that they can hold to. They can They can uh, do these things. They can give to the poor. They can help the old lady across the street. They can do all these different things, and these things that we know are good because they're written in our hearts. It says that in Romans as well. We all know morality. We have a sense of it, but we make it so that we can achieve that sense, and then we live in a balancing act that our good will outweigh our bad. That's kind of their philosophy. If I do enough good, it will outweigh my bad, And then I am good. But yet they don't have a self-assurance. We find them in Romans 2, 8, and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The next category is legalism. Legalism, I would categorize these are the people that would be like us in the church, we identify that there is one God who is in control. There is one God to be worshipped. Then the Jews would be fall into this category as well. Romans two seventeen to 25 kind of summarizes how they thought and how most of us will probably have been thinking. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know this will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor uh, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because you have the law in the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. The Jews thought they had an automatic shoe-in because they were the chosen people of God. They were chosen by God to to show the nations who the true God was. They thought they had it in because they had all these requirements they had to do. They did the sacrifices. They did all the ordinances. And they thought if they kept those, it didn't really matter what the rest of their life looked. As long as they did that, God got, gets us in. They trusted in the circumcision. As long as they were circumcised, they were in. But Paul kind of dismantles that in Romans 4. He asks them a question. Was Abraham... Deemed righteous before circumcision or after his circumcision. It was before his circumcision that Abraham was called righteous. Circumcision was simply an act of obedience to what God had promised him. He was in, it, was in a, it was a seal of the promise, promise that God had given Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation out of him. It was just a sign, an act of obedience, just like our baptism is today. When we follow Christ... We turn from ourselves and we get baptized and are declaring. It doesn't have nothing to do with our salvation. It's simply a sign to the world that I am now done with myself. I am buried to my sin and I rise again in Christ. Sometimes we have this notion that we need to get baptized immediately upon or they aren't going to heaven. Right? There is nothing there. It's a simply a sign. There is no work that, will, that is involved in our salvation. And each one of these categories there's a common denominator they're all taking God out of the equation. God is not there. It's all about self. We all reckon each category recognizes that we have an issue and the issue is our sin. We have this looming feeling over ourselves that we are we have sinned and we must deal with it. We don't, and as in the, the Greeks, they thought it was foolishness to simply trust in Jesus, so we come up with a, a system to, nega, to get God out of the picture because we have a debt, and our natural response is to pay for that debt. So we try to pay for that debt. The academic will simply just erase God out of the equation, say he can't be proven by science, so we got to, so they take away their conscience by searing it, by saying science can't prove him, we're not going to follow him, so I can do whatever I want. The moralist tries to outweigh it with works. And a legalist tries to abide by the law and says if I abide by the law, I will be saved. But Paul has a very different, different approach on that and the gospel has a very different approach on that. In Romans 3.12, it says, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul is actually simply reiterating the Old Testament. It's not a new concept in the New Testament here. He is quoting actually Psalms 14, 1 to 3. And here it actually adds one more verse in here. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. So the person that says there is no God is considered a fool, just like we saw in, in the first Romans, Genesis eight twenty one. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, "Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all of the things as I have done." He's talking about the flood there, but he is recognizing he is calling us evil from our youth, from our childhood, even. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We know this verse well from Sunday school class. Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like unclean things and all our, uh, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. He's calling our good deeds, our self-thought good deeds, filthy rags. I don't know if you, any of you have ever looked at what the filthy rags are. Means or what he what Isaiah is referring to there it is the cloth that is soiled by a lady's menstrual cycle he is referring our de- good deeds not our not our sin our good deeds to that he is trying to bring us right down he wants us down and to think in a right understanding of how wretched we are how much of a sinner we are and he's painting a picture on and Paul in the next Eight chapters is going to paint a picture on how righteous God is, how holy God is and how low we are and how far apart we are. And we need to understand that. If we don't understand our sin, we won't understand why we need to be a living sacrifice. We won't get there. And we won't complete what Paul is commanding us to do. So the next eight chapters, I I just read over once and I found there's 25 mercies that Paul talks about and gives us, that God has given us through the cross and through his Son. We are justified. We have grace. He is our propitiation, which is our perfect sacrifice. We are righteous. We're forgiven. He gives us life, hope, perseverance, mercy, peace, a new character. He gives us the Holy Spirit, love. We are saved. We're reconciled, glorified. We have protection. We we are resurrected in a new life. We are holy. We have a new spirit, deliverer. We have sonship, we're adopted, he's our intercessor, and he's our provider. I'm sure if you read it over again, you'd probably find more that you could add to that 25. But you could spend well over a year, maybe two years, just on those gifts that God has given us. It's amazing when you start thinking of what God has done for us. And the two that jump out to me are the peace. Peace jumps up to me. Why is that? Because if we have peace in Christ, what did that make us before? In Romans 5, 8, and 10, it tells us, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God calls us his enemies. Before we are in Christ, we are his enemies. Before we find peace in him, God is actually our enemy, it tells us. That's something hard to think about. He is storing up wrath for those that do not give glory to God, do not recognize that he is our creator. He has given us life. But he has provided a way for us. We don't have to be at war with him anymore. God has justified us through the work of Christ, not a work of ourselves in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, as, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Paul is trying to make it very clear that there is nothing that we can do on our part. God has done all the work, all the work is in Christ. Jesus Christ it's on the cross we cannot do anything nothing of our good deeds has provoked him to do what he did for us and if we think that there is something that we can do we are holding ourselves at a higher spot than we do we're actually kind of putting ourselves at level with God that we can have some part in our salvation there is no part Paul wants to make that very clear all the glory is to God God He offered his son, sacrificed his son for us. There is no room for anything else. And if God, if there was, then God would would owe us salvation. But we, we are not owed anything. We are owed judgment. We come through the Father in John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. There is no other way. We need to get that notion out of the way that somehow our acts can do it. Many of us probably have fallen for for that lie, is that I need to change something in myself before I can come before the cross on my knees. I need to get a handle on my sin before I can come before God. I need to show Him that I am trying somehow. But all that does is lead for tomorrow, 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 because you realize you're never going to get there. Romans 11, 30, 33 to 36 we see Paul is now in a state of worship. He is, he is meditating on all these things, all these mercies of God, and it puts him into, into worship. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him, for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God, or Paul, is just worshipping. He's on his knees worshipping, hands up. Who has counseled him? Who has given God this great knowledge? Often we think we can give some insight to him. This is how it needs to be done. This is, this is where we need to go with this. Or, but no one can counsel him. He know, He's had this thing set out right from the very beginning. First Peter 1, 12, it talks about the angels long to look into these things. These things are the salvation plan, the reconciliation plan that God has laid out. The angels are marveling at this in heaven right now. The Greek says that the angels, it kind of paints a picture that they're on their tiptoes. They're in the background on their tiptoes looking underneath the legs trying to see through everything. What does God have in store? Because they've only seen the wrath of God. Satan and his buddies, they turned and rebelled against God, and all they saw was they got kicked out. One shot, one sin, got them kicked out of heaven forever. There was no plan for them to be saved. They are doomed for eternity someday to be bound in the pit of hell. They don't get a second chance, but they saw this, this creation, this being that God has created, put on this earth, us humans, and he, they see us Mocking and ridiculing God's love, what He has done for us, we mock Him with every selfish desire that we claim to. Like in Bible st- or in Sunday school, God, des- we deserve something. God, you owe it to us. Why don't I have that? Why don't I have that? We don't look at what God has already given to us, and they look at us and they see how ungrateful are you. Do you know who you are talking about? But they long and they marvel and they rejoice every time someone recognizes that God is good and turns to Him. In Luke 15, they, t- they throw a party every time there's one person saved. One person. It's good to think about. Even the angels are celebrating what God has done. That'll take us, kind of gets us in the right mindset for when we look at Romans 1.12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers. He is pleading with us here. It's a, it's a word of urgency. He wants us to understand what God is telling us here. Look at what God has done for you. There is only one appropriate response that you can have to a God like this, to a love like this. And he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is your proper worship. There is nothing else. It is you that God wants. He wants your heart and your fullness. And last week, we had a little panel up here, an an understanding on reading the scripture, why it's good to read through the Bible. And we had some people, they were all in, agreeance that we can't skip over Scripture. And I thought that was very awesome to see from right from the the youngest on the panel to the oldest. They're all in agreement. We cannot skip over the boring parts of Scripture. And why is that? Because the Jews would understand what a sacrifice is. They would understand the cost that it it took them to offer up their animals and their stuff. So let's let's look at Leviticus 1, 3 to 9. I'm not going to read it. I'll just kind of paraphrase it. But often we think when we're... The Jews would give a sacrifice. We think of them just lining up a bunch of animals. They hand over the priests and they would kind of maybe name tag them because you would have a long list, one altar, to offer all these sacrifices and you would kind of walk away and the priest would pray for you as you go back, back home. But in Leviticus 1, we see there's the word he that is mentioned six times. The he is the person that is bringing the offering to the priest. And we're talking about the burnt offering. This is the most common offering. It is the offering that sanctifies a person. It is a general offering for sin, for the sin nature of man. It's the offering that purifies us. So everybody would give a burnt offering before they even give another offering, and say a sin offering or a wave offering or any of these other offerings, so that they would be clean and then come before God in pu- and in worship. So everybody would be doing this. So we're talked six times. And each time the person is talked about, the offerer, it is a command. There's, there's a command with it. So the person would have to bring a bull, a lamb, or a, a bird of some sort, depending on how wealthy you were at the time. Your offering would reflect on what God has blessed you with. So you would bring a firstborn. It would be a male, and it would be uh, perfect. There would be no deformities with that offering. You couldn't have a limp, you couldn't have any disease or any seen thing. You had to be as far as you could tell, as perfect an animal as you can get. So it often mean that it would be one of your youngest, because as you know, you get older, there's a little bit more that goes wrong with you. So it'd have to be as close to a year old as you can get. So, and that would often mean that this animal has not actually made you any money yet. This is the prime of your stock. You spent a year, two years getting it ready. You've been feeding it. You've been housing it. You've been protecting it. It's just been putting a hole in your pocket. And now as it's about to turn and give you money and give you profit and pay for itself, you're commanded to give that animal before God. So you can you can start seeing the sacrifice already. This is their livelihood. This is what gives them money, puts food on their plate. They're supposed to give that animal to God. So when they bring it to the... The priest they 're supposed to lay their hand on it, and they 're actually the ones that kill it it 's not the priest they 're the one that takes the life of their offering and from there the, uh, the priest would take the blood, do sprinkle it all over the place, and then while he 's doing that, you would actually skin the animal you would sit there and you would skin you'd take it off, you'd cut the head off, take the skin, put it in another pile priest would take that, organize that on the on the altar. And then while he's doing that, you would take and cut the meat apart. Put it in its sections. Clean it. Then the priest would take that, put it on the altar. Then you take the guts and everything inside, wash them, and then the priest would put that on the altar. There's a long process. It's a painful process. Because the whole time you're seeing your prized animal dead, and you're offering it away, and it's just going to be burnt up. Be gone. But it's... But God wanted to... Be very clear that there is a price to be paid for your sin. There is a price to be paid. And sadly, most of us have become like the Israelites did in Malachi 1, 6-8. They were still doing the sacrifices. They were still doing exactly what God had commanded them. But they changed one little thing. One little thing they changed. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father... Where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. If you, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. You ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. They changed something. Was it still a bull that was going on that altar? Was it still the firstborn going on that altar? When it was on that altar, did it look perfect? Did it look, did it have guts? Did it have meat? Did it have a hide? Did it have a head? It had all those things. But it was not the perfect animal that God required. It was not the perfect animal. Just like God, or Paul calls us to be a living sacrifice, he's calling our bodies into being a living sacrifice. That means all of us. There's a reason why they had to wash it. There, there was a cleansing going on there. They were cleansing that bull that they were offering. We need to be cleansed and show all, all of us is on that altar. Not just our lips, not just the outside, all of us. It doesn't, we need to be all there, not look like we're all there. We can fool people around us, but we will not fool God on judgment day. That's what Malachi was warning the Israelites there. You look like you're fooling everyone around you, but you do not fool me. I see through that. I see through your actions. In the second part in... uh, of Romans here it says do not conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind this is a tough tough part of the passage I, fu- I, I, I found I want, I want to make it clear as we go through this this is where the sword starts to poke a little bit Pansy is not about becoming writing laws. We're not, we're not that way. We know that. We're free in Christ. We're not going to be making laws and everybody's supposed to be guided by those things. Each one of us are different. God has given us that freedom to guide each one of our lives. Each one of us struggle with different sins. Each one of us will address our sin in a different way. It might require us to look differently. If you're one that struggles with lust, it might mean that you get rid of your TV, but your neighbor doesn't need to get rid of his TV. You don't have to look down on him because he has a TV in your house, right? There's, w- there's room for this kind of stuff. And so I want to poke a little bit because there is a complacency that I think that is coming into our church and there's pressures that are coming in and as we compromise, we are no longer becoming living sacrifices. We are creating what, exactly what was happening in the first, those three uh, categories that we were talking about in the beginning. We make a, a moral law for ourselves, To get us in. Then it becomes an act. It's no longer a sacrifice. It becomes a part of us. It's a law. If I do this, I am saved. We see that happening all the time. Or it becomes legalistic. We see the pressures. I don't know if you guys are aware. I just found out this week that in Sweden, they're putting a law into effect. That happened in January now, just in the new year. They're adding discrimination against transgenders in their hate speech crime. So that's punishable by a fine or up to two years in prison in Sweden now. I'm not saying that hate speech is a good thing. We as a church should not look down on people in sin. We walk beside them, we help them, but we do not discriminate against them. But we do not permit sin. We do not soften the gospel and say it's okay if that's how you are or how how you think you were designed. That's not what we do. We walk beside these people. We love these people. We pour it out on them. But are, are we going to be willing to do those things? I, another article I read, there's a church in Ontario. We're praying for a church and, and they are standing toward for the word and they're getting rid of leadership that, that was a homosexual and they're having flack with that. We need to pray for that. I also heard in Ontario that a church compromised... And they were going through a suit, and they had a woman atheist pastor that is allowed to stay on the pulpit and pastor of the church. How do we get there? How do we get there? It's compromise. It's the pressures of these worlds, exactly what Paul is talking about. Do not conform to the powers of this world. In James 4.4, 4, it says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? You go back to being an enemy of God when we start putting these things in front just so that we can be accepted into how the world wants to think. They will call us fools. They will they will ridicule us for this. But that's okay. It's only for a time. So with that in mind, I want to poke a little bit just to get our minds going just so that when we leave from here that we can start a conversation with one another. That's, a, that's my goal here. We need to be open with one another. We have this Conquered series. I'm going to keep on picking on the men a little bit. But that's good. They can handle it. That we are open with our sexual desires and our problems. Many of people have struggled with it. But we get together here and are coming together. Open doors. We don't discriminate. And we help each other along no matter where we are. People that have conquered it. People that are going through it. We come together and show that we are one. And we walk, and that's the same thing with any sin. We want to be open to that. We will not judge you for it. We will walk beside you and show you, but we will not tell you that it's okay to continue in that way. We will guide you to see how Christ, in his word, tells us to live. We will walk beside you with that. So that in mind, we're going to start with kind of some lesser things, and they'll kind of get gradual a little bit, maybe a little bit more uncomfortable. How do we partake in music and movies? How do we go about with our entertainment? How do we purchase these things? Do we purchase them from the store or do we have some fancy Torrent stream that can get everything for maybe a buck or from some guy's back garage? We all have dealt with the many times when you see the blue screen pass, pop up on your to with your PlayStation or your controller, skip it and it won't let you skip it. So you've got to sit one minute and watch this blue screen tell you that you should not be re- reproducing this product. Is it stealing when you do that? Are you being faithful to God's word? How He teaches that. What what, what we're watching. How what do we put into our minds? It's funny how we grow up. I'm watching my kids. Carson is now. He watches some TV shows, and I can. The other day, he was talking, and he had a British accent. He had a cheeky old maid and he would say that with a British accent. I was like, where do you come up with that? And it comes from Peppa Pig. Anybody who watched Peppa Pig? It comes from, he watches a lot of Peppa Pig and he starts having this accent. But as we get older, we think we can handle these things. We can watch whatever we want. It's not going to influence our life. It's not going to, cause a problem with my thought life it's not going to cause a problem with how I deal with anger when I hit myself with a hammer or how I think right I can control my words it doesn't matter if there's more swearing in there than, than dialogue I can control my thoughts is it edifying to the Lord our work how are we at work are we the hardest working people in our job do are we honest with our time card do we show up five minutes late to work get a buddy to click our time card in and no one will notice that we're been late for the last five weeks how are we are we honest with our breaks are we honest with our time what is that is that stealing or what is that or do you think you're owed that from your employer because he works you too hard employers here do you allow room for mistakes for your employees or do you Drop the hammer on them when they do something that costs you a little bit of money. Do you allow for that? Are you showing forgiveness that Christ has forgiven you? Do we show that same mercy that we expect from God to, our other, to the people around us? Taxes. How do you do on your taxes? Are you the one that pockets a lot of side job cash in your back pocket that de- the government never notices it? That's acceptable in the world standards, right? Just like all the other ones we've mentioned. It's all acceptable. But is it expect, acceptable to the word. The Pharisees asked the same questions to, the, to Jesus. And he answered, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Is it ours? What has the government called us to do? They, we should not be worried about if the tax man comes and wants to check your books. It should be fine. Give it to him. It should be fine if we are following Christ's example. Are we... Christ-centered in our walk that we say we are when we come here. The next one might hurt you a little bit more. Christmas. How do we celebrate Christmas? We all know Christmas time comes around. Starbucks hits our Facebook feed. Oh, shoot, they didn't put on Merry Christmas on their coffee cup. We're all not going to buy Starbucks anymore. We get annoyed at that. Right? But what do you expect? They do not serve a God. They don't serve the one true God. That Christmas means nothing to them. I'm asking you as, as professing, is Christmas Christ-centered? Or have we also got lost in all the trappings? They all started good things. They all represent good things. They were designed to point us to Christ. But has that pointed us to Christ this year? The next one that's upcoming is Easter Sunday. How are we going to celebrate Easter Sunday as Christians? Is he our all? Or do we have the cross surrounded by a bunch of Easter egg nests with the bunny peeking out from behind? Without the cross, we spend eternity without Jesus. And we need to honor that if we believe what we say we believe. There's nothing wrong with all that stuff. There's not, God has designed the world to enjoy. He says, go out and subdue it. Enjoy the fruits. I've made everything good. There's nothing wrong with that. The wrong comes when it becomes the idols. We are in charge of our kids. Do they focus, what do they focus on during these celebrations that we hold so dear to us? What gets us flowing when Christmas comes around, when Easter Sunday comes around? Is it Christ? Or do you need to watch Christmas movies for two months beforehand? That gets you, gets you going. You know? Or am I off my rocker? You can tell me later. Get get the juices flowing here. Men, what I found interesting, I'm going to pick on you a little bit from Ephesians as well. That's usually a, a verse that we like to use for our wives. But men, how do you dress? How do you act? I was looking and studying a little bit about the prodigal son. And it was back in the day in the Middle East when Jesus was around, it was disrespectful, dishonoring for a man to show his ankles in public. That's why they wore robes. They had touch touching the ground. They would actually not walk. They would suggest you walk with one foot on the ground all the time. So you would not fear exposing your ankles. It's funny to think about. now. And then as the time goes on, we see there was a law in the 20s, I think. They would measure your bathing suit to see if it was okay that you were on the beach. And now men can get away with wearing Speedos. Where is the common line? Where do we get our influence? Is it from the scripture or are we influenced by the world? Do we need to put this aside as the world says, get up with the times? That's old. That's, that's for that age. It's not for now. That's an old doctrine. That's for the, for the Ephesians or the Corinthians. That's, that's not, 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 not us. We have changed. We've, we're more sophisticated. We know better now. The word is Timeless. How do you treat your wives, men? After we quote, women be submissive. Right after that it says, husbands, treat your wives like Christ with Christ's love. Is that not more daunting? To love your wife like Christ has loved us, the church. We only love because Christ showed us love. Do you love your wife the way you want her to love you? Can she come to you with everything on her heart and you not to get thrown back in her face with some kind of Criticism or ridicule? Are you her safe haven? How are we called to be as husbands? What does the word say about that? Where are we getting our philosophy from? Is it worldly, or is it from Christ? In uh, First Peter. Four, three, one to three. Maybe we'll uh, maybe before I get there. We'll just leave it up there. But a living sacrifice. Paul was our perfect living sacrifice. If we want to look at a person that understood what sacrifice meant, Paul was the man to look at. He, was, he called people to follow me because I follow Christ. He was reflecting Christ. What Paul did in 1 Corinthians 8, we have the Corinthians, the Jews in Corinth, were fighting over whether they could eat meat whether it's sacrificed to idols. Could I eat it? Could I not eat it? Am I free to eat it? What do I do with this? Paul, in a nutshell, said, if it's going to offend my brother, I will abstain from eating meat for life. Because he understood the severity of sin. He understood the severity of where someone would go to hell if they stumbled and fell away from Christ. He was not willing to go there. If it was going to make someone stumble, he was not willing to go there. He was willing to put off his freedom that he has just got in Christ. We are free to eat. If we are there, we are free to eat the meat in that time. We have different issues now. Where, what are those issues? Are you willing to sacrifice here in Pansy when you recognize someone is struggling with something and they see you doing it and it's causing them stumble? Are you willing to forego that for the rest of your life so that they will not sin? Paul understood that. He understood that Christ came to serve and not to be served. The king of kings came to serve us, to show how we were supposed to act. Do we have that mindset or do we have the mindset, I, owe, I am owed these things. I am free in Christ. I can do these things. I don't care about Joe Blow who is struggling with it. And I don't care if he's going to sin and get lose his salvation over it because it's going to pull him down to a point where he can't come back. Are you concerned with that? Are you willing to go as far as Paul did to become a vegan? Many of us would hate that thought, become a vegan. i It's a challenge. Is that how you view, view sin? Is that how you view it? First Peter calls us and gives us a, a fantastic reason for why we need to. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... We have spent enough of our life doing that already, Peter is calling us. That is why we must offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. The world will see that as foolishness. They'll see it as unwise. But when we forego the things of the world, we often look for, how do I evangelize? How do I present the gospel to people at work? There's no opportunities. But when the world sees that you do not do what they do, they might ask you why. Those are opportunities for to present the gospel and what you are changed. You used to be there. You used to do that. But now they see at work, you got saved at work, and they, see, they know who the old man was, and now he doesn't do it anymore. She doesn't do it anymore. That's an opportunity. I have a buddy who, at tax time, his accountant asked him, why do you give so much money? He doesn't understand it. Why do you give so much money away? That's an opportunity to present the gospel, what God, Christ has done for you the gift that God has given us, and that we are just simply sharing what he has blessed us with. There's many opportunities. We, offer, we struggle with that. We've, but if we are living sacrifices, the world will see the difference. The problem is they are starting to not see a difference. They see a church of compromise because we want, don't want to feel the pressures of the world. Sweden's not that far away. It's coming. It's no different in here. Are we going to be grounded when that hits, when that comes? We need to be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the clarity that you have in your word and how it all joins together so so magnificently. Lord, I ask that you forgive us when we are compromising, when we feel the weight of the world on us and pe- the eyes of the world looking on us and, and judging and we, we fear them and we forget to fear the one that has the power to destroy the soul, Lord. Lord, we sh- we need to have that fear so we can humbly come before you and let you just purify us and sanctify us, Lord, and let us be a church united together and let us be a church that is willing to walk beside one another and not laugh and, and make fun of people that may be struggling with something that you have won and succeeded in that you have given us the grace to have overcome thank you heavenly father and lord i ask that you be with us this week and just not let this stay here but let us just sit on our hearts for the next week month year that we do not be influenced but we by the world but influenced by you and your word amen